Today on The Dan Cave, Russell Wilson isn't going anywhere. A record-setting deal keeps him in Seattle for the next five years. So what's next for the Seahawks? Reports of a possible Frank Clark trade continue to grow. I gave you two possible trade scenarios last week. I'll add another one this week and tell you why dealing Clark is the right thing to do. And don't worry about the Mariners losing four in a row. I'm not. They're not. I'll remind you why coming up next on this special edition of The Dan Cave. Welcome to The Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. Breaking news. We have breaking news, everybody. Indeed, Russell Wilson and the Seahawks have agreed to a new contract. It's a record setter, as was expected. Here are the numbers. Four years, $140 million tacked on to the last year of his current deal. So he's in Seattle for five more years contractually. $140 million total, 107 guaranteed. $65 million up front. That's a $65 million signing bonus. That's an NFL record. The guarantee is an NFL record. Here's some key points to keep in mind. This is not tied in any way to a static percentage of the salary cap. There were late reports yesterday. Peter King of Monday Morning Quarterback, formerly of Sports Illustrated, came out and reported that a couple of things. First of all, that this was an ultimatum, that if the Seahawks hadn't agreed to a new deal with Russell by midnight of yesterday, that not only would he not negotiate any further into the season, but that he was not going to negotiate a long-term deal ever with the Seahawks. He would play on the franchise tag year to year. And just see where that took him. Never believed him for a second. Not going to spend a lot of time on that one. But it was reported that his agent, Mark Rogers, was insisting that his salary be tied to a percentage of cap. So in other words, as the salary cap went up, as new TV money, as new gambling money, which is coming down the pike, the NFL is being a lot more friendly now with gambling and they're going to allow sports betting on football games. That's going to infuse a ton more revenue. It's going to be a huge point of contention on these new labor talks. But as the cap continues to go up, as it does almost every year, $10, $12, 15000000 million a year, that his salary then would rise commensurate with the salary cap. Aaron Rodgers attempted to do that with the Packers. Ultimately, it wasn't done. Same situation here. That was something that wasn't agreed upon by the Seahawks. And if it was a if it was brought up, it certainly wasn't a deal breaker, um, as it seemed like it might have been yesterday. There was a lot of there was a lot of consternation, shall we say, as the day went along. And I got caught up in that too. I was confident all along. I said it on this show. I've said it on Twitter. The deadline didn't mean anything. You still, even though this got done, you can't convince me that if the Seahawks had gone to Mark Rogers and Russell Wilson in August at the end of training camp and said, here's the deal you wanted, that they would have turned it down just based on principle because, no, we told you April 15th, no later. But deadlines often spur action, and now that it's done, we can all breathe a sigh of relief because we don't have to worry about the franchise quarterback going anywhere. So in that sense, in hindsight now, the deadline was a good thing because it got it done. And the Seahawks know where they stand with their quarterback, and now they can move on to other things. But it got really... I got nervous yesterday. And 
as it turned out, I'm glad I didn't stay up until midnight and wait this thing out and and refresh Twitter, refresh Twitter, refresh Twitter. I thought it would be best to go to sleep and get up super early to see that news had broken. And 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 in fact, it had. And and then to find out that it was half hour to 40 minutes after the deadline had passed when this thing was actually announced. Um, you know, I'm glad I opted to get some sleep. Um this also points out that Russell wanted to be here. All the rumors about the Giants. And then that dumb story on Pro Football Talk a couple days ago that basically said, hey, we're hearing from somebody who might think that the Seahawks may believe that Wilson doesn't really want to be here even though he isn't saying that to anyone. It was all conjecture. It was all speculation. It was, it was one of those things that just really... Kind of the fire got stoked on social media and it just grew and grew. It was like the telephone game from there. Clearly, he wanted to be here. If he didn't, and I've been saying this uh, for a few days now, if if he didn't want to be here, then he could have he could have taken a different route. He could have taken the Antonio Brown route, and he could have done it with more tact, more class, and been in a better position to leverage, and therefore made it happen. If he had told the Seahawks, I don't want to be here. I want to be traded. I'm demanding a trade. If you don't trade me, I'm not going to show up to training camp. The Seahawks would have had to shop him. And at that point, he probably would have gotten traded. They don't have a plan B. Paxton Lynch is not going to take this team to the playoffs. And it's all the free agents are signed. Not that there were any good ones anyway. All the guys that were on the market have been traded, except for Josh Rosen, and and I wouldn't want him anyway. It's a bad QB draft class. There, He could have made that happen if he wanted to. Russell clearly wanted to be here. He's now locked up for his prime. I think that's another big part of the, the timeline of this contract. He's 30 years old. It, it, it'll be his 30 to 35 year age range. We've seen this. That's Those are the best years of a QB's career. I mean, now more than ever, guys are playing beyond that. Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Phillip Rivers, playing at a high level beyond that. But those are his prime years. He's locked up now. Apparently, the final piece of this puzzle at the 11th hour, at about 20 minutes to midnight last night, from what's being reported, the Seahawks added in a no-trade clause, and that was the clincher. Not the percentage of cap, but the no-trade clause. Russell Wilson wanted to be here. He just wanted to be acknowledged as a valuable quarterback, franchise quarterback, paid at the top of the market. Okay, don't forget, and I'm not going to belabor this point, but don't forget the bargain that the Seahawks got by striking it rich, striking gold in the third round and getting Russell Wilson on a rookie contract, a third round rookie contract during his first four years when the Seahawks were building a Super Bowl contender. Okay? If you take what he's made on his last deal and what he's going to make on this deal and you average it out for his entire career, it's a bargain. It's a bargain. And this likely means also that he's going to play his entire career in Seattle. I want to address some of the... Um, some of the negativity that's out there, some of the cynicism, not just among opponents, because that's natural. 
We do it. I do it with the Rams. Better enjoy this run because once you have to pay golf, not going to be able to pay anyone else. It's wishful thinking on our part. But you're hearing a lot of that this morning. Well, now they can't pay anyone else. And these, this is from Seahawks fans. I was dumb to pay him $35 million because now they can't pay anyone else. Two points to that. If you listen to me, you've heard me say this. First of all, the cost of not having Russell Wilson is much greater than any dollar amount you're paying him today. Because finding a franchise quarterback is the hardest thing to do in all of sports. In all of sports. You can say, well, finding a true ace in baseball might be the toughest thing to do. Yeah, but you can still win World Series after World Series after World Series if you have four or five really good rotational pieces, too. Yeah, there's been a couple of average quarterbacks to win Super Bowls, but those those are the outliers. That's the exception. That's not the norm. It's much harder to win without a quarterback, especially someone as special as Russell Wilson. Well, but they're t- they're paying him all that money, yet they don't throw the ball enough, so it's a it's a waste of money because they could they could have anybody just hand the ball off. I'm not even going to spend a lot of time addressing that opinion because that's just that that that's somebody that doesn't understand football. The fewer passing attempts you have a game in the National Football League, the harder it is to succeed. The more precise you have to be, the more dynamic you have to be. Russell Wilson's been better than he's ever been the last two years. And I would argue he was better last year than he's ever been. Except for that Charger game, which I got pissed about. And you all know about that. Because he had to be more precise. Those plays meant more. It was a higher degree of difficulty. Higher leverage situations. Okay? So the prospect of not having Russell Wilson? Scary. Really scary. And here's the other part of this argument that I would make. If you think $35 million is too much to pay Russell Wilson, where's your breaking point? Would you pay him $28 million? It, it That's about what he was making. It seems like people were comfortable with that. So you're saying that $7 million is enough to jettison your franchise quarterback over and is also the difference between having a good roster and a bad roster? Do you not understand what dead money means? Do you not understand how much money we were paying to Cam Chancellor last year who couldn't play football? Cliff Averill who couldn't play football? Malik McDowell who couldn't play football? We get that money back, by the way. (laughs) Just a little side note. There are other ways to manage your salary cap. You have to be smart with what's left. Think about this for a second. Over the next three years, his average cap hit $28.4 million. The real cap hits are in 22, 2022. But think about where the salary cap will be by that point. New labor deal, gambling money, et cetera, et cetera. So for the next three years, his cap hits only $28 million. Are you okay with that? The current cap is 188 million. It goes up every year, but the current cap is 188. Do the math. Can't? I'll do it for you. 188 minus 28 is 160 million dollars. You have 160 million dollars minimum 
because the cap's going up. The cap always goes up. So you have $160 minimum to build the rest of your roster. That is plenty. In fact, you can keep all the key free agents. These idiots on Twitter that continue to say over and over and over again, can't keep Clark, Reed, Wagner, Wilson, can't keep them all, can't pay everybody else. I detailed that a couple of weeks ago. But here's the other part of it, is don't try to keep all your key free agents. This is what derailed the Seahawks after they won the Super Bowl. They tried to keep everybody. They gave big contracts to two starting defensive linemen, two of their three linebackers, three of their four defensive backs. They paid seven defensive starters elite money, top-of-the-market money, league-leading money, top-five money, seven defensive starters. You can't do that and sustain it, and we saw it. They couldn't keep their middle free agents. The depth all went to other teams looking for more playing time. They changed the way they were drafting because they weren't looking for starters anymore. Schneider admits that was a mistake. That's changed. You can't do that anymore. But you know what you can do? You can basically pay elite money to one player from every position group. Almost every position group. I'll get to that in a second. Pay some mid-level money to keep really good players around. And then continue to draft and develop. That word gets lost a lot. Draft and develop, which the Seahawks have shown they're good at. So you continually, continuously have an influx of young, dynamic talent. Guys that are trying to get paid, trying to prove themselves. Chip on their shoulder. That's how it was built in the first place. Okay? So you can keep Clark and Reed, but you got to keep drafting defensive linemen, developing them, watching them grow, finding guys like Puna Ford, undrafted last year, was a starter by the end of the year, is about to embark on a career where everybody for the next 10 years is going to be talking about how in the hell did this guy not get drafted? Raheem Green, third round last year, basically redshirted this year. Haven't seen what he can do yet. Jacob Martin came on at the end of the year, saw how dynamic of a pass rusher he could be. Guys like that continue to develop. Cam Chancellor didn't play as a rookie other than special teams. Became a Hall of Fame caliber safety. Continue to develop and draft. Guys like that. So you can pay two of your defensive linemen. Keep restocking it with young guys around him. You can pay Bobby Wagner. Go with young guys around him. They got K.J. Wright back on a ridiculously inexpensive deal. You're not paying any of your secondary big money right now. Even Bradley McDougald came back last year. Key piece, veteran, wanted to be here. That's a really, really team-friendly contract. You've got two young corners right now, Shaq Griffin, Trey Flowers. If one of them becomes a Pro Bowl-level player, you can keep him. Rotate out the other position. Do what some other teams do. Trade one of them before their deal's up. Get a draft pick. Continue the cycle. Keep drafting DBs. On offense, they're paying Dwayne Brown big money. Justin Britt's making good money. Everybody else, cheap. But they keep drafting and adding to that position. They keep developing. 
running back. I don't think you're ever going to see, and this is something else to keep in mind. I talked about all the defensive starters that made big money after the Super Bowl team. They were also paying Marshawn Lynch. Huge money. They're never going to do that again. Even if Chris Carson leads the league in rushing the next two years. You know why? You know one of the reasons why? They drafted Rashard Penning last year. It wasn't just because they thought he was good, but they're, they're thinking three years ahead. They'll keep adding running backs to the mix. They'll never pay top-of-the-market running back money again. Chris Carson could absolutely, he could win Offensive Player of the Year. They're not going to give him Le'Veon Bell money. They're not going to give him Todd Gurley money. They're never going to pay a tight end what they paid Jimmy Graham again. They'll pay a receiver or two, as they are now, but they'll continue to add guys to that mix and develop the next group of wide receivers. We saw David Moore take a step forward last year. Amara Darbo still has some upside coming off an injury drafted just two years ago. Doug Baldwin, 2019, if he can play in 2019 because of his injuries, that'll be his last year. That money comes off the books. The cycle continues. If you're saying they can't afford to keep everybody else or field a good team because they signed Russell Wilson, it doesn't mean you're stupid. Everybody can have their opinion. Everybody sees things differently. But it says you're lazy because you're not taking the two or three minutes to A, either listen to this argument, or B, look for it. Look at it yourself. Go to overthecap.com. Play around with the calculator. Look at the salary cap and how it changes year to year. Not having a franchise quarterback is the worst place to be in the NFL. It's the worst place to be. And just saying, well, we'll draft a guy. How has that worked out for other teams that are constantly looking to the draft to fill their quarterback position? So, I talk about those judicious decisions that you have to make. Drafting, developing, who to pay. It means that if you want to avoid the predicament they were in three, four years ago, it means you got to let some of those guys walk. It means you can't keep them all. And we started to see that this year. You can see a shift in their philosophy. Justin Coleman, young, not even in his prime yet. One of the best slot corners in the league. They didn't want to pay him $8 million. That would have thrown the salary scale off. That would have made it harder to pay some other guys. So you let that guy walk. Earl Thomas, Hall of Fame free safety. This system was made for Earl Thomas. As a player, would they have liked to have him back? Yep, can't. Let that guy walk. We've sunk a bunch of draft assets into the safety position in the last few years. Let those guys play. We'll adjust the scheme if we have to. Can't pay Thomas that kind of money. Got to let him go. Tough decision. Love to keep him. Can't. So you get a third-round pick for Earl next year. You get a fourth for Coleman. And the cycle continues. So while we're on the subject of judicious, <laughs> judicious decisions, <laughs> maybe I should write to my um, vocal ability a little bit better, right? Anyway, while we're on that subject, let's get to our Tweets of the Week. Tweets of the Week. Tweets of the Week. Tweets of the Week. So in the category of what's next for the Seahawks now, they have those other free agents they have to address, right? Jaron Reed entering the last year of his deal. 
Bobby Wagner, last year of his deal. Frank Clark. Contract expired last year. Seahawks placed the franchise tag on him. Little over $17 million guaranteed. He says he'll play under that tag, but he's not going to come to the offseason activities. We don't know if he'll show up to training camp without a new deal, long-term deal, but he says he won't come to any of the offseason activities, which started yesterday. Then there are those other free agents, right? you got to take care of them. Pro Football Talk tweeted Monday or Sunday night. There's some chatter on the league grapevine tonight about a possible Frank Clark trade, FYI. Pro Football Talk isn't always the greatest source, but they are pretty tapped in. And then Mike Garofolo, someone I would place a lot more weight on, who is one of the better national NFL writers and analysts out there, works for the NFL Network, said this after the Russell Wilson contract was consummated early this morning. The Russell Wilson deal could have a ripple effect on Seahawks defensive end Frank Clark. A possible trade there was on hold while the team worked on the Wilson deal. Only so much money to go around. They'll continue to listen to offers. Stay tuned on that front. The key part of this tweet is a possible trade there was on hold while the team worked on the Wilson deal. That's huge. Mike Garofolo of the NFL Network is saying that the Seahawks and another team were actively engaged in trade talks, but they put them on hold to see how the Wilson deal would go. Presumably, that, that might mean if the Wilson deal went south, it would affect where the Seahawks saw their salary cap going, and also upfront money may have made it more likely to work out a deal with Clark. You have to wonder now, though, now they know where they stand with Wilson. But they also know what it'll take to keep Frank Clark. The market's been set. Demarcus Lawrence signed that deal that he signed with the Cowboys. Frank Clark's a year younger, has been as productive, has been as healthy. So he could command more, right? We're talking 21-ish million dollars a year for a 25-year-old defensive end. Here's why I have a problem with that. And this has nothing to do with how I feel about Frank Clark as a player. If you hear me say anything, hear this, because I'll say it a lot. It's possible to love a player and believe that your team is better with him on the roster today and also believe that it's the best thing for them to move that player. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Defensive ends aren't a great investment in my view. There's injury concerns. As hard as Clark plays, he's always going to be banged up. And yes, he played with two damaged wrists last year, and that's great. And and his toughness and his pain tolerance, all of, all of that should be applauded. But it also points out concerns. Defensive ends aren't as reliable. You can pay your franchise quarterback $35 million a year and have a pretty good idea that he's going to be on the field all 16 games. The rules now... How, how much they protect the quarterback, how good Wilson is himself at staying out of and getting out of trouble, not taking hard hits. It's a safer bet that your quarterback's going to stay healthy. But you want to pay a young defensive end $21 million? His odds of spraining an ankle, pulling a groin, missing six games, far greater than a quarterback. But I also believe this. 
I believe very strongly in something that Mike Holmgren said after he left the Seahawks. He said if he could do it all over again during his early years when he was also the general manager, he would have signed veterans on offense as free agents, and he would have paid to keep his key offensive players to promote continuity and stability, and he would have kept going young on defense because defensive players are young, they're hungry, they haven't been paid yet, and they rely more on that tenacity, that aggressiveness, that hunger. He did it backwards. He went young on offense and spent a bunch of money bringing in older defensive players. John Schneider has said it himself. This is one of the best defensive line drafts he's ever seen in his career in the NFL. There are reinforcements out there. And I know the Seahawks only have four picks. And I've talked about how they'd love to trade down from 21. They might not be able to. But even if you assume best case scenario, they trade down, they pick up an extra third, an extra fourth or fifth somewhere along the way. Yeah, they can tap into that deep defensive end and defensive tackle class. But you could tap into it even more if you trade Frank Clark. I talked about two possibilities last week. There's a trade I didn't talk about. I think the Kansas City Chiefs make a lot of sense. We know that the two front offices have talked before. that The Chiefs and Seahawks were engaged in talks last year for Earl Thomas. And so there's a rapport there. There is a connection there. Kansas City is the 27th pick in the first round. They let D. Ford go. They traded him, hit him with the franchise tag, and then traded him to the 49ers rather than pay him. It doesn't necessarily mean they won't pay an edge player. It might just mean they won't pay him. They're changing their scheme this year. He didn't quite fit. They need to do some different things on defense there. They were the 31st overall defense in the league, I think, last year. I think they make some sense because by pick 27, all those top edge guys, the slam dunk guys, are going to be long gone. Even that second tier that we thought might last until the Seahawks pick at 21, Brian Burns, Cleland, Fel- or Cleland Farrell, those guys now routinely are being projected to go in the top 15. Not going to be there. They also have a couple of, they have an extra sixth round pick. They could add one of those if the 27th pick is enough. But I think the 27th pick would be enough. I saw a report last week that the Seahawks would listen to trade talks on Frank Clark if it started with a Second round pick. It would have to start there. So that's those scenarios last week with Indy and Buffalo. We're talking a high second, but you'd have to add something to it. A fifth, a fourth, or a fifth. Kansas City with the 27th pick might be enough. It might be enough. You could stay at 21 and take the best guy there. You could trade down from 27, pick up extra picks, or vice versa. You could trade down from 21, stay at 27. Trade down from both of them. Rack up some volume. But I wanted to look at what that would translate to as far as actual names. And this is why I think it's an attractive prospect. Okay, Just taking that Indy trade last week, for example. I did a mock draft where I took that high two, the second pick in the second round from Indy, and a five. They have a bunch of extra picks. They have a ton of cap space. They don't have any big-time edge rushers. I still think Indy's the favorite. Then I traded down from 21, picked up some extra picks. Here's what I ended up with. Charles Amenahue from Texas in the second round. To me, that's a steal. He's a first-round talent. He's that guy kind of like Michael Bennett. He can play inside. He can play three technique and rush the passer. He can play on the edge. He's stout against the run. 
but he can get after the passer too. Long arms, really strong, tested extremely well. High character guy. Charles Amenehu in the second round all day long. And even as a rookie, I don't think the production that you would get, the drop-off from Frank Clark to Amenehu, is that dramatic. It's not $21 million different, I'll tell you that much. In the third round, once again, I've talked about him a lot on this podcast, but Ben Banigou from TCU, elite athleticism, long, lean, explosive. His film's kind of uneven. And I was even talking to a uh, an analyst this week on Twitter about how uh, he's kind of confused by it too because there are a lot of times that Banigou doesn't put his head down and go after the quarterback. He kind of stands up and takes a balanced approach, kind of reads the play. I suspect that may be scheme and coaching. I think you put Ben Banigou in Pete Carroll's hands and he could become better than Frank Clark as a pass rusher. I even grabbed Tristan Hill out of Central Florida in the fourth round. One of the most explosive, dynamic, defensive tackle prospects in this draft. Who has one of the hottest motors in the draft as well. Get him in the fourth round to add as a three technique. Now you've really supplemented your front seven. And I'm not just drafting those guys. In this mock draft, I had two twos, two threes. I took a receiver. I took an offensive lineman. I'm still supplementing other needs. But just focusing on the front seven, or the defensive line specifically, Omenihu, Banigou, Hill. You could do that in rounds two, three, four. You don't like those three guys? Okay. You don't like those three? Here's a list of names of other edge players that were available in either the second or third round when the Seahawks picked in this mock, if you don't like those names I mentioned. Ja'Kai Polite, Zach Allen, Anthony Nelson, Chase Winovich, DeAndre Walker, LJ Collier, Jalen Ferguson. I could go on. There are other tackles. Draymond Jones. Dexter Lawrence. Trust me. If you can get a high second and then some, or a low first, a late first, for Frank Clark, you do it. And then guess what? Guess what? There's still some free agents that haven't been signed yet. And after the draft, a couple weeks after the draft, the comp pick formula goes out the window. You can sign anyone that's left, and it doesn't affect the comp pick formula at all. It doesn't affect your 11 picks that you have next year. Ziggy Ansa, if he checks out physically, 30 years old, in his prime, elite pass rusher, had some shoulder issues. If he's fit, If he's healthy... You can get him on a one-year deal, prove it, dirt cheap, throw him in there. The Seahawks met with Nick Perry. He's only 26 years old. He's had a 10-sack season in Green Bay. Agent says he's as healthy as ever. He's been laying low. No one signed him. Could be waiting for the Seahawks situation to uncover. Played for Pete Carroll at USC. Cheap, one-year deal. That guy could still be had. We talked about Danny Shelton last week to fortify the the run defense, interior defensive line. So there are still free agents you can add also. So just keep that in mind as we go forward. I think anything that, that happens with Clark would likely happen on draft day once once teams see how the draft falls. But if if Clark is still a Seahawk when the draft starts and you see you see those defensive ends start to come off the board. Top 10, top 15, all those names. Guys you thought were going to slip. Even Jerry Tillery, Rashawn Gary, guys like that. They go. The chances of a Frank Clark trade 
increase. And I'm here to tell you it it would be the prudent thing for the Seahawks to do. I want to touch on one other thing too because now I'm seeing a lot of this too. Well, now that you're paying, you're going to pay Russell Wilson more than any other quarterback in the NFL, but you're going to run 50% of the time. You're not going to let him you're not going to open the offense up. You're not going to let him throw it. That's a waste of money. What again, it's all perspective and context, right? What would make you happy? I I get the sense when I when I try to parse these arguments and grind through some of these people's analysis and arguments that if we just threw it four to five more times a game, everyone would be happy. And I just, that, that just seems ludicrous to me. I do believe that it's just all about sequencing. The problem with the Dallas game wasn't that we didn't throw enough. It's just that we didn't mix it up better. Throw more on early downs. I have to believe, and this will play itself out. First of all, I take Carroll at his word. He said, we analyze ourselves every season. There are some things we're going to look at with how we call plays. We'll adjust. We'll grow like we do with everything every year. We've seen it on defense. He's not stubborn. He's not hard-headed. We saw him blitz more last year than they have in a while. Saw him send corners and, and linebackers more than they have in a while. Played Played two deep safeties instead of the single high. Instead of just being stuck in his ways. And because Earl isn't there anymore, just playing the next guy at free safety, but playing him in the same way that Earl was deployed, he didn't do that. So I look for that. I look for them to adjust that. But also, it had to be part of this conversation internally. Okay. We're paying this guy $35 million now. Can't let him go to waste. He's our biggest asset. Let's use him. Let's surround him with talent. Let's add another young receiver in this year's draft. Let's add another tight end weapon. Let's continue to work on that offensive line so it gets better and better and better at opening holes in the running game, but also giving him protection. So he's on his feet and he's effective. All right, let's get to the Mariners uh, briefly. I kind of told you this was going to happen, right? They've lost four straight. I'm hearing a lot of, I told you so. Here we go again. Same old Mariners. Shut up. Just stop it. Three of the last four nights. Verlander, Cole, Bauer. Carlos Carrasco goes tomorrow night. Four of the top six vote-getters in the Cy Young last year. This was going to happen. Eventually. Great pitching is always a good bet against good hitting. The schedule also gets a lot better. There's a lot of games against the Angels and Rangers the rest of the month. Okay, They're still 13-6. and six. They weren't going to continue winning in an 84% clip. We knew this was going to happen at some point. They're not in first place anymore. They're a half game behind Houston. Houston's the best team in the American League. I'll take them against Tampa Bay any day of the week. In a seven-game series, right now. My money's on Houston. Best team in the American League. All they did was show that. They're still 13-6. and six. Yeah, they're not in first place anymore. They weren't supposed to be. They're not going to be. They're not a playoff team. But they'll be interesting. They'll be entertaining. They're worth going to the ballpark to watch. They might go on streaks again and be in contention into the summer. But there's a process going on here. 
It's about what's happening in player preparation, player development, the minor league system. It's about what's happening on the farm, and things are going extremely well in that area. Which leads me, I want to hit on a Dan's Dandy this week because Eric and I went to a Rainiers game yesterday in Tacoma. And I just, it, my dandy this week is Cheney Stadium. It was her first time there seeing a ball game, and she was blown away by it. She's from South Florida. She went to a lot of games in Jupiter, spring training games, Jupiter Hammerheads. They have a great ballpark experience there. She couldn't believe the things that are happening at Cheney Stadium, the way it's designed, the sight lines, the, the party decks, the cool little spots you can go to to get different vantage points during the game, the R bar up on the top level down the third base line. Just the, the, the feel and the decor and the natural wood they used. The quality of the concessions and the food. Local breweries like Seven Seas being featured. Really, really cool experience. And uh, uh, we plan to go to Cheney Stadium a lot this year. More than Safeco. My one little side note though, my addendum to that. <laughs> it... Part of the appeal of going to a minor league game, even a AAA game, even as recently as four or five years ago, part of the appeal of going to Cheney Stadium was free parking, cheap hot dogs, beers cheaper. Beers were about eight bucks, hot dogs were five. Cheaper merchandise, not the case anymore. It's not different at all. Thirteen bucks for a beer now, eight bucks for a hot dog, and and what really pissed me off actually is we love. Merch. Our closets are full of Seahawks and Mariners and Cougar stuff. And she's got a bunch of Packer stuff. And we, we're good customers. We're the people you want coming into your pro shop. We'll spend money on merch when maybe we shouldn't. And I think we were mentally prepared to buy some Rainier's merch yesterday. But oh my God. The prices in their pro shop are worse than big league prices. And I'll give you a specific example. Every year, there's a new official hoodie that the teams come out with. And the design on the front is slightly different. They change the logo or the format just slightly. You see the Mariners and their coaching staff wearing this hoodie in the dugout. It's the official hoodie every year in Major League Baseball. It's made by Majestic. It's not even an Under Armour or a Nike product, but it's dry fit. They're kind of that mid to lightweight hoodie that I love. I've got a bunch of Cougar ones like that. I don't have a Mariner one. But if you go to the Mariner's Pro Shop, full retail price on that majestic hoodie pullover is $80, $79.99. You know what they're selling that exact same product for with the Rainier's logo on it? $100, $99.99. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. If it was 80 bucks, I might have bought it. But as a result, I was so pissed off, I didn't even buy a hat. Their hats are regular price. They're 28 bucks, just like everybody else. But no, that's dumb. The ticket prices are cheaper. That's the only advantage nowadays. You can sit anywhere in that stadium for 11 bucks, 15 on Mondays, and you get a hat and, uh, and, a, and a hot dog. So... That's still great. It, it does piss me off that none of the dugout club seats are made available, even though the companies that own them almost never use them and they're almost always empty. I feel like that could be addressed. I would pay to sit in those seats a couple of times a year. 
Um, even even at Safeco, or I'm sorry, I gotta get used to this. Even at T-Mobile Park, you can buy individual Diamond Club tickets. They're expensive, but you can buy them. But Dugout Club isn't even available at Cheney Stadium, so that's that's the drawback. But the experience going to the stadium, fully recommend it. Um, I was a little disappointed that we didn't get to see Braden Bishop in the lineup yesterday. I guess he was sick, uh, but we got to see Shed Long and J.P. Crawford. Uh, Joey Curletta, uh, minor league player of the year last year at AA Arkansas, hit a hit a long home run. That was great. Ian Miller, smallest guy on the field, hit a home run. That was cool. Also got to see him uh, turn on the Jets and and get a triple. Uh, they won ten nothing. Tommy Malone, thirty um, two year old junk balling lefty. He's been hurt. He's been up and down with a couple of major league clubs over his career. He's the ultimate veteran junk baller trying to hang on and get another cup of coffee only throws 86 miles an hour now he was unhittable he absolutely had uh albuquerque tied in knots and and the mariners did what they did yesterday at least they began the rally against um the colorado rockies top pitching prospect um kid was good he wasn't great though um he was 93 with decent breaking stuff but uh, it was a good experience. It was fun. Uh, I highly recommend going out to see the Rainiers. So that's going to do it for this special edition of Dan's Dandy. Russell Wilson's a Seahawk. He's going to be for his entire career now. The draft is nine days away, and a lot could happen between now and then with Frank Clark. We'll keep our eye on that. Bobby Wagner did not show up to voluntary workouts yesterday. That was unexpected and disappointing. But I expect now that Wilson's done, uh, once the draft is over, I think the Seahawks will turn their attention to Wagner and they'll get that done. He's representing himself. He wants to be here. They just brought back his best friend, K.J. Wright. Um, I think that'll that'll start to ramp up here in the next couple of weeks. But until next week when we really dig in, um, I'll do a draft preview. I'll give you my favorite Seahawk player prospects that I want to see them take for each round. And we'll do one last mock draft as we get ready for the draft next week. Until then, follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Email me at thedancaveshow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to The Dan Cave. We'll see you next week. Until then, go Seahawks. Go Mariners. Go Cougs.